I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design, recorded in the Living Kitchen Studio. This week, you are going to hear from architect Adam Sokol. Sokol's educational resume is really impressive. Columbia, Harvard, Yale, and the University of Paris. If you're new to the show, welcome. You might not know this, Long-time listeners are surely aware, I think education is wonderful. Education of all types, not just those in the classroom. That being said, a university education at institutions such as these, it does give one access to individuals that one might not ordinarily have access. And Sokol certainly had access to those individuals. And he talks about instruction and access to those types of people and how that's affected his career and it, it's, you know, how it affects his design. This impacted both him personally and professionally, and I'm really pleased to share his experience with you. You are also going to hear about his firm, the, the work, uh, and some truly interesting projects that are helping shape Los Angeles and elsewhere. This is architect Adam Sokol. Convo by Design is presented by Snyder Diamond. Their unwavering commitment to provide designers and architects with the tools to help create the kitchen and bath of dreams for their clients is unmatched. Why? Well, you have amazing service, for one, and world-class products that help make homeowners remarkable in the kitchen. And with those two things combined, you just, you get an unmistakably amazing shopping experience. And you find products that are game changers, like those from Sub-Zero, Wolf, and Cove. Sub-Zero's refrigeration provides so many options with regards to finish, configuration, and width that you will find the right product for just about any space you can design. If not familiar with the Pro Series already, you must see this. Glass front or solid, side-by-side or over-under with options from 36 inches to 48 inches, it's exquisite and you're going to love it. Pair that with Wolf and their warming drawers for both custom look and state-of-the-art design and functionality. This is function with flair and flexibility. And if that wasn't enough, Cove dishwashers offer that sub-zero wolf quality, style, and technology for a kitchen suite of products that just they work seamlessly together. What could be better than that, you might ask? Well, through the Grand Kitchen event, your clients can receive three additional years of protection, uh, with a qualified kitchen appliance package. Details and conditions apply, so find out more by visiting any of the three Los Angeles area Snyder Diamond locations and visit their Pasadena or Santa Monica showrooms to see the all-new, amazing, and redesigned living kitchen. I asked the question because I, I love finding out from creative types how they wound up where they are. Because I think that if... It's not to diminish someone who's a lawyer mm-hmm. or an accountant. Mm-hmm. You know, great professions, right? But if you, you oh yeah, I just, I, I got into college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I went into business. I went into law. I went into accounting. You like numbers, whatever. But creative endeavors, you could go in any number of different directions. Yet this is the one you went in. And yeah. you, have a, you have a fondness for architectural history. Which I, I also find out is interesting because mm-hmm. that, that generally means that you're, you're passionate about the subject matter. So I'm curious how you wound up 
doing what you're doing today mm-hmm. and if it's what you thought it would be or if you had to sort of manipulate the profession around how you saw it. I, you know, I had this very wise teaching assistant when I was in college who said to us as a group of students one time, he said, um, architecture is what you do if you can't be happy doing anything else. And I think that's very apt. Um, yeah, I, I tried every, you know, I did like a summer intern, internship on Wall Street. I signed up for like the civil service exam or another foreign service exam one year to like join the State Department, I, everything you could imagine. And I just kept kind of coming back to it. Um, and I, the funny thing is, so like at Columbia in particular, there's not an architecture major for undergrads. Um, I mean, which is common in like liberal arts programs. They had a major at Barnard College, which I signed up for, like very much looking forward to it, my second year of school, and I hated it. It's a studio. My the first studio I ever took, I dropped it. I hated it. I really? It Literally dropped it? Mm-hmm. In fact, in, that was in my four years of college. It was the only class I ever dropped. I just detested it. Why? You know, they started out with these exercises like analyze the inch, analyze the foot. Here's a Le Corbusier painting, like extrapolated into three dimensions. And I'm like, this is bullshit. This, these aren't buildings. What does this have to do with architecture? And I just, just I, I wasn't interested. But at the same time, like Columbia in particular has this phenomenal program in history of architecture. I mean, the architecture library is, is the best in the world, most people would say. Um, you know, it's got connections to, to MoMA, to all these institutions in New York City. is very, very strong. And I just, you know, there's something about kind of going where the talent is. Um, it's like, you know, if you look into like TV or film, it's like subject is great, but like having a really amazing actor goes a long way, whatever it is that they're doing. And it's a little bit like that. It's just they had the, the faculty was phenomenal and the people that they had there. Um, so that was what I did. I, I didn't look back. I enjoyed it. Um, I don't know about this chicken and egg thing. Like, am I more interested in history because I did that major, or is it all a coincidence? It's it's hard for me to say. What do you, what do you think? What do you think now? I would say I'd probably have a much like broader view about history than than a lot of architects. See, because I I think the historical reference. Um, had a conversation with an architect named Ward Jewell years and years and years ago. Uh-huh. And I want to say he was one of the first architects that I had on the show. And he said something really interesting. He, was, he just said, you know, if, if you want to know where we're going, crack a book. Mm-hmm. Look, at, look at architectural history because that will dictate, based on the circumstances, where we're going in the future. And I think that, that that makes sense. And I, I think he was also saying that partially that not enough architects do that. Um, you know, the, the, the trendy nature of society now. Architecture really, the, the purpose and the function hasn't changed. Mm. Yeah. It serves the same purpose that it always has. But, but the, the functionality... Um, has has changed based on how society changes and i have a i have a theory too that um it's not really a theory but i i I find architects to kind of be the the futurist with regards to the way that we live you have to kind of identify especially now under changing circumstances use of materials yeah use of structure use of form to do the same things you know here here in la mobility Mm. is is a huge issue Mm kind of have to change the way we live because land isn't as readily available as it was 20 years ago. Do, so thoughts on that, 
in regard to your own practice? It's tough, you know, when going, going back to college again, I mean, it was the first dot-com bubble and everyone was saying, oh, with the internet, cities are going to be obsolete because it's like, we don't need proximity, it'll be online. And of course, that hasn't come to pass. In fact, if anything, I think we've seen the opposite, that if you look at the past 20 years, we've seen more concentration on the coast and those places that, you know, are more focused on technology, let's say. Um, and and those, a lot of those cities have really boomed, right? But it's like, whether it's the startup scene in Silicon Valley, New York, whatever, like those people are not working from home and telecommuting from Omaha or whatever. I mean, they're there. They need to be there in proximity. So, I mean, in that sense, I, I would agree with you that architecture has not changed. Um, you know, what, what's tough is that, I mean, in professional practice, like we live in such a challenging environment in terms of like managing cost. And everything tends to want to like revert back to the norm of you know steel studs and drywall and like these type of things, and it's that's where the trick is to push those boundaries and but still get things built um, and find the right you know if you just go along with that you're not innovating you're just kind of cranking out product. Um, at the other extreme, we could sit in the studio and like imagine you know 3D printed plastic buildings or whatever, and that's exciting and maybe we'll get there one day. But you know you're never going to see those things built in the next decade or two at least. I don't know. Is that true? Uh, and, and, and I say that because, you know, it, one of the things, I, I'm a native Angelino. Love living in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, moved away. Mm-hmm. Always, always came home. One of the things I absolutely love, which is, which is really the, why I started the podcast in the first place, was because I, I love LA. I love the architecture. I love the style. I love that it changes as often as it does. I love that um, this is, LA is where people go to reinvent themselves no more so than in the creative endeavors. Yeah. So you've got a, you've got a Wallace Neff, right? Remarkable in practice. Yet he decides that he's going he's gonna to solve the problem with all the GIs coming home and create the bubble house. Right. What a weird thing to do, right? Yeah. To t- basically turn a swimming pool upside down is, is in essence what it is, right? Didn't catch on at all. You had the name behind it, certainly a a unique, different approach to material, form, and function doesn't take. Same time, but decades later, same place, so I guess different time, but same place, storage containers. Steel rectangles, right? right? Totally catches on. And they're being used in practice. If you had said to somebody... 30 years ago, hey, you know those things on the back of trucks, we're going to turn those into residences. You might as well have said, hey, we're going to turn swimming pools upside down and live in them. Right? You, there seems to be a willingness to do that here. No? I think that's definitely true. There's a willingness to try. I mean, certainly, like, you see that in Frank Lloyd Wright, who comes to L.A. with the textile blocks that I don't believe he used elsewhere. Um, an interesting case. I mean, I've looked at those houses... Uh, the Ennis house is amazing, hasn't taken off. Um, I mean, if just thinking about it, you could just see the reasons why it's not going to take off. But I mean, it's still, I mean, yeah, LA has that. Um, It's it's something I love about this city, just this like sense that these things are possible, this level of creativity and opportunity. Do you think with regard to the blocks, that because there was so much artistic relevance 
to what they were. They're each they're they're ha they're hand formed basically. They're created out of individual molds. They're they're not suitable for the environment that we have here. You know, his his residences are notoriously leaky, mm. right? If 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 these go bad, and they start to break down, yeah. You know, generally, you know, putting making block structures in earthquake prone country, mm, probably not the best idea. Now, if it's so labor intensive to replace them that each one is an artisan block, maybe that doesn't make the most sense. What would have happened if the artistic relevance would have been elsewhere and the blocks were just easy to get, almost like, like brick? What would have happened yeah. then? Yeah, and I think that's a point. I mean, there's a thread in the work of Frank Lloyd Wright of you know, him trying to get one thing to do three things. You know, like there's a famous example in Falling Water where the window mullions are actually structural, um, and it's a challenging way to work. Um, so, I mean, you have to, I think in every project, I mean, in my experience, you have to choose your battles and you have to say, okay, this is what this project is about, and this is the thing that I really care about in this moment, and these other five things are going to be in the background. You know, they're going to be like the backup band, and like this one's going to be the lead singer, and this one's going to like do the heavy lifting in this case. I mean, and it, it, could be materiality, it could be form, it could be light. I mean, those, and it sort of depends on the circumstance. But I mean, it's, it's hard to kind of have all of them play that role at the same time. Because sometimes if you do, it's like instead of having something that's balanced and tells a story, it's just kind of cacophonous. I, I'm also fascinated that architects would want to come and work in Southern California for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. The climate. Mm -hmm. The, the shaking nature of the foundation just by mm. the nature of where we, where we live. Yeah. The regulations that you have to work within. It makes experimenting mm -hmm. even more difficult, no? I think the climate makes it easier, right? Oh, okay. You barely have to keep the weather out here. Well, but wait a minute. But, you know, the climate is, is drastically changing. Whether it changes back is a totally other story. But we, we get more water, we get more rain now than we've gotten in years. We have more yeah. drought than we have in, in recent memory. So you've got more of everything. Whatever, that's, whatever the cause is, whatever the cause is, you can't argue with that. Right. Um, earthquakes continue to shake. So you've got dry ground, wet ground, shaky ground, rinse, repeat. Got a, it's, it, that's a challenge, but as an architect, you find ways around that. And then you've got the regulations that you have to deal with. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be easier if you were in Nashville mm -hmm. or in Dallas? Well, I mean, you, you probably know that I worked in Buffalo for 10 years. We still have work that we do in Buffalo. Um, so, I mean, it's not Nashville or Dallas, but it's you know, in that vein. And... I mean, yes, there are fewer challenges. It's much easier to get things approved and there's flexibility, but it doesn't offer the opportunities that LA does in terms of, you know, the people who are here, the vision, the optimism, like the energy, the wealth, like all of it, you know, it's, it just doesn't quite work that way. From a historical standpoint, uh -huh. where do you place Southern California uh -huh. in, the, in the pantheon of architecture? I mean, you know, at this point in time for me, I don't think there's a better place to be an architect in the world. Um, Current time? Right now. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I grew up in New York. It's my hometown. Um, I mean, I left New York in part for personal reasons, but also I, you know, 
I worked at SOM. It was a great experience. I wanted to have my own firm. I didn't want to be doing kitchens and bathrooms for 10 years or whatever it is that you know people do in New York City. And it's just with the density, it's difficult. Um, you know, you're not going to walk out the door and get some giant project on day one. And it's just difficult and there's not much in between in the, in the ecosystem there. Um, so I think LA has that to offer. I mean, it's, it's so vast, Southern California. And, you know, but it's not, again, going back to New York, it's, it's so Manhattan centric, right? I mean, those like exciting design opportunities in New Jersey, not that many, you know what I mean? Or Long Island. But like here, I mean, Orange County, there's still stuff happening. We have a client, you know, doing stuff or, you know, I mean, out in the desert and Palm Springs, I mean, any which direction you want to think about, there's just so many things that are happening here. So your, your top favorite projects, the favorite projects that you've, that you've done here, what are, what are some of your favorite projects and why? That our office has done. Mm -hmm. Well, we have had our office here a couple of years now. Um, architecture is a very, very frustratingly slow enterprise. Um, you know, we are working on a couple of things in California. I want to say four at the moment. None of them has been completed yet. That's a little bit of a tricky question to answer. Um, on a certain level, I always feel like the best project is the next one. And it's like very excited about where we're going. And it's, you know, we've been working on this hotel in downtown LA, which I believe began in 2013, 14, it's been quite a long time. And I, I think like intellectually, our studio has come like such a long way since that time. Um, and it's, it's this weird anachronism to still have like on the boards, this project that we cooked up six years ago, you know, and it's like probably unique to architecture in that way that these things can drag. I mean, maybe that happens with big films to some extent or whatever, but, um, you know, my wife is a painter. I mean, she sure as hell is not working on paintings she began six years ago. Um, some artists do. Yeah, no, it, it, it could happen for sure. And why, why is it taking as long as it has? You know, the approvals in L.A., honestly, it just, you know, the process to get commercial, like large commercial work approved, it just drags on for years. It was... What is the nature of the, of the drag? What is the, what is the resistance? Is it bureaucratic? Uh, uh, yes. I mean, there's this little thing called CEQA, uh, California Environmental Quality Act, um, you know, which as it implies is... is intended to like look at the environmental impact of buildings and it just you know it's it's politics people use it as leverage to pile on let me take the other side for academic purposes only mm -hmm. what what data points come out of that process is in other words i i don't think there's another there is no other state in the union that is as um call it socially conscious uh, in, a, in attempts to be socially responsible. How's that mm. for, for politically correct? Yeah. Um, you know, may, maybe Oregon, maybe uh -huh. Washington, uh -huh. but, but certainly along the West Coast. Um, when, it, when it comes to being responsible that way and having those, those regulations in place, as much as you may be unwilling to, what are the positives from that? You know, I'm not. I'm not an expert on CEQA. I know my little corner of it. No, no, not even not even CEQA, but what it does, what it stands for, what we can, what we can, should. Okay, what is the value of having regulation? I mean, I'm I'm gonna maybe play the devil's advocate. I mean, in my opinion, I think it's like massively overregulated. Um, I think 
for sure we should consider these things. You know, I mean, the CEQA stems from federal law. Um, and I, my understanding is that every state had to come up with its own version. I mean, there are analogous processes in New York, but what we had to do for this hotel we're working on in New York, you'd only have for like, you know, a, a stadium, an airport, like a giant mega project. You wouldn't have it for a single private development. Um, just because at the end of the day, is it bad for the environment to do a hotel that's in an urban location on an infill site that's currently a parking lot that's half a block from a, a metro station? No, it's kind of like a no-brainer, you know. But yet, they're still going to go through the, the whole thing for four years. And it's the lawyers and the lobbyists and the politicians and all the rest of it. So I think it's, you know, there's, there's so much attention to homelessness and the high cost of housing here. Um, and, and there's always this sense that, oh, well, let's force developers to build affordable housing. Let's like pile in more and more regulations. And I'm like, but, but no, the regulations are precisely why the housing is so expensive in the first place. So let me ask you, would, would there be any relief were it not a hotel, mm -hmm. but a residential project? Yes. I mean, residential projects are easier, and that's just, that has to do with the, the politics of them to some degree. Um, but I mean, it, it really depends. I mean, are there, are there neighbors? Are you blocking their views? Are you, you know, creating a parking problem locally or traffic or doing something else to antagonize them? I mean, that's kind of case by case. But I mean, on the whole, they're, they're simpler. So with those regulations, again, major, major issue. And it's interesting, too, because L.A., Again, 20, 25 years ago, especially downtown LA, I, I challenge you to think of any issues you would have building. They would probably even even 10 years ago. Even 10 I think years. This ago. is a recent change. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sort of pinning the growth of downtown LA to Staples Center. Mm -hmm. I think when Staples Center went in, and mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how many years ago that was, mm -hmm. but when Staples went in, that's when the whole LA Live complex went in around it and once the LA Live complex went in around it then you sort of had this emergence of it was a spread right from yeah. there it, it was the spreading out of, of things and and then the parks and from the parks then you had the arts district and everything sort of got it got busy in a hurry right but prior to that downtown LA was a, a wasteland yeah my entire childhood never went down there. I went down and, you know, discovering things like the Triforium. The Triforium. I mean, that was, that was built in, what, the 60s, 70s? And it's this remarkable art sculpture. And it was just, it was, it was left to, to fall apart for decades before it was rediscovered. And that's a hard thing to lose. Angel's Flight, you know, another yeah. thing. So it's just, it's interesting to me how all of a sudden when you have one project, which makes me think again, you know, in LA, you look at Inglewood. So Inglewood, mm -hmm. when this stadium's complete, mm. I wonder, what do, what do you think Inglewood's gonna look like 10 years after that stadium's complete? I mean, my personal two cents, I'm not a believer in stadiums as economic tools. There's a lot of data on that. It's, you know, politicians like to make that argument in order to justify public subsidies for sports and there's very little data to support that the stadiums in fact have that effect. I'm not speaking in, for, in, in terms of how much economic growth is going to come uh -huh. in. I'm talking about the way that once they go in that it changes a neighborhood. Yeah. And I can, I can pin that. I mean, 
if I'm looking at what, what happened around Staples Center, I can look at that. I, I spent years in Dallas. And when the ballpark in Arlington yeah. went in and replaced the old stadium, yeah. it, it turned into a huge residential area. And mm. then the Cowboy Stadium moved in around that. And mm. it, it even further, further grew it. Here, we don't have that kind of opportunity. I'm not, I'm not super knowledgeable. My understanding is that some of the stadiums, I know there's a new one in Atlanta, um, have a more kind of like urban quality and they're a little bit more mixed use. I mean, it's probably still sitting on some massive parking structure somewhere, but you know, whereas the football stadium in LA, I mean, still seems like it's still gonna be surrounded by an ocean of parking that unlike, you know, Dodger Stadium. And I'm gonna wager a guess, you know, I know that there's a lot of investment happening in LAX right now, um, in transit to LAX and within LAX. LAX is a, I mean, it's a shithole as an airport, but like if you look at it economically and not experientially, it's, it's one of the top airports in the world and there's still growth potential. And I'm going to take an educated guess that LAX does more business in a day than that stadium will do in a year. And I think that's, oh, sure, sure. if you were to ask me like, what's the one thing that can transform Inglewood? It's, it's LAX more, th- more so than the stadium. Well, I, I, I would say, I, I just think that, um, you know, using, using Staples as an architectural example mm-hmm. of how, something like that can can revive a neighborhood yeah you know and maybe downtown la isn't the greatest example to to choose from because it was it was so misused Mm. for so long as a as a downtown area but you know we talk about infill yeah and you know most of la county i'm trying to think i can't think of any vast undeveloped underdeveloped sure but undeveloped i can't think of anything yeah, there's not much. There's not much. And so from a, but one of, again, one of the things that I love best about Southern California and architecture, you know, architecture. So Beverly Hills, you know, there used to be a, a racetrack, a, a, a mile long wooden automotive racetrack mm-hmm. in what is now downtown Beverly Hills. You know, there used to be the, the first um, Wrigley Field was basically in Orange County. Right. Uh, it's where the angels first started. It's just, it's amazing the amount of architecture that was created in Southern California. And I'm curious mm-hmm. for an architect, mm-hmm. it, does that, and someone who's so interested in architectural history as well, yeah. does that inspire you? Do you? What does that do as far as motivation to create? I, you know, I think for me, the motivation to create like comes from within and comes from here. I mean, I do go see these things and I think probably when I was like in my twenties, it was like really exciting, you know, and traveling around the world. I think like what's exciting to me now is to get like an hour in my studio, like and be alone with my thoughts or maybe like a good book and really focus more so than that. I mean, also I should say like, you know, 20th century history is history. I mean, it's out there, but I, you know, I we're looking a lot at like ancient history or like the Renaissance, like Baroque, you know, I have books on my desk about like Indian fortifications and like these type of things. You know, we're working on a, um, a food market in New York, which is called the Bazaar. And we said, well, great, let's look at bazaars. And of course, the Bazaar originated in the Middle East, um, you know, 800 some odd years ago. And that's what we're looking at. And it's like typologically, and that's exciting. So it's, you know, it doesn't, uh, you know, LA is interesting, but it's, I think our interests are like way broader than that at the same time. If you could, if you could develop anywhere, where would you work? Develop anywhere. Architecture. If you could develop projects anywhere, where uh-huh. where would you work? Um, 
It's a tough question. I think it's... it's, no, it's no, it's not. <laughs> You're saying about the site and the climate or the... If you could build, if you could develop anywhere, if you could work in any, any part of the country, any part in the world, is there, is there a dream project? You know, if you could work at the, at the, at the base of the Eiffel Tower, if, mm-hmm. if you could... You know, it's funny too, because I imagine at some point... Someone's going to come in and say, you know that park at the bottom of the Eiffel Tower? We should turn that into a... Yeah. Uh, whatever themed... Remember, Las Vegas started out with... Uh, with I don't want to call them pure intentions, but from a, from a development standpoint, it, mm-hmm. I would shudder to think that the people who first created Las Vegas wanted what it is, what it is now. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But if you, could, if you could build anywhere, where would you build? I mean, for me, it's, it's less about the actual site and more about the opportunity. Um, and people have come to us. It's, it, you know, things happen and it's, it's, it's so hard to foresee, like in retrospect. I mean, we, we just finished this project we call the X House, which is in China. And we wound up building an interior with 18 domes on the 55th floor of a high rise in Beijing. I mean, if you had said to me, you know, three years ago, is that my dream site? I would say, no, that probably sounds kind of boring. But I mean, it turned out it was an amazing site. Boring or challenging? Well, more so. I mean, it's, I don't think it's challenging. I just think it's, you know, a high rise is kind of like ho-hum. Um, but it really, it depends on the context. And I think in that case, that was about the client who was just really open to these kind of things. So it's, that's why it's, it's, you know, less about is it LA or San Francisco or New York or some other country or like the moon. I heard Norman Foster's designing a thing for the, you know, it's, it's more about the opportunity, I would say, like intellectually. So specific types of projects is there is there a dream project that you've always wanted to work on i guess i have to say no i mean there's not one that's like coming to mind right away okay um i what i will say i mean the challenge for us is that there's a lot of pressure to like specialize and to have your niche um for some people it's like typological it's like we design stadiums we design hospitals right other people it's more like um you know formal and, you know, we don't have to name any names, but like people who are known for like designing particular shapes. Like I really enjoy the challenge that comes with variety. And, you know, I guess we're fortunate. I mean, in any given moment, like right now, I mean, we have residential interiors or commercial interiors that are fairly small. Um, we have like kind of mid-sized projects like that bazaar, we're doing a museum. And then we, we have uh, the hotel in downtown LA, which is probably the largest. So, I mean, we have this, you know, very disparate array of projects. Which is, that's, I mean, that's what I like. That's what's interesting. I mean, it's, you know, why do we take on a small residential interior? It's just really for, like, the challenge of it, you know? All right. So here's a challenge for you. You have a city like L.A. Mm -hmm. with a massive homeless problem. Mm -hmm. How does architecture fix that problem? You know, I hate to say, I think architecture has its limits. I see that as an economic problem. Um, or a political problem, maybe. I don't think it's, it's not a design problem. I mean, you know, if you went to some architects and said, could we come up with a way to build more cheaply or whatever, but, you know, construction costs are very high in LA right now. I mean, why? Because LA is booming and the contractors have a lot of work because it's expensive to live here and that translates through to pretty much everything because everyone you deal with has to pay to live in LA. Um, all of these things, you know, the economics, 
Um, you know, I always think about Houston, which has these like notoriously permissive zoning laws and housing is dirt cheap in Houston, right? LA, we have the opposite extreme. I mean, it's, you need an expert consultant to figure out the zoning in LA because it, it's so, you know, mind boggling, right? And then there, we talked about CEQA. That's, that is what is driving the homeless problem. I think, to, and plus the weather is probably a factor, you know, but I don't, and I hate to say it, but I don't, I don't think there's some brilliant structure we could cook up that would deal with it. I think it's a, it's kind of a political problem as I see it. If that makes any sense, it makes sense. But I, I think I, I think I'm the perpetual optimist, and I feel like because architects are futurists, mm -hmm. that there there is a there is a mechanism in place to alleviate. Is is it a financial issue? Absolutely. Is it is it a political issue? Absolutely. Um, at the same time, I feel like that's where we're going with. Uh, architects doing more than simply designing That's structures sure. yeah but you know uh, let's take let's let's go back and, and use LA as that example again and the the gig economy are people working from home the way that you know now we're going back to the very beginning of what we started talking about are, are people working from home the way that some said they they would well, it turns out they're working from their car. Apparently, apparently they're driving, working driving Uber. Well, and and that's a mobility. Well, you yeah. have you have the gig economy for drivers, but you also have a mobility issue here. It, you know, if it takes you an hour to get from point A to point B, at some point it becomes a a better option. Technologically, if if technologically it's it's a it's an option, to to work from home. Yeah. You know, because you're not spending that much time in your car, and we really don't have to anymore. So, if that is the case, are we building differently? You know, I, I don't see it. I mean, I LA is slowly evolving. I mean, the metro, you know, inch by inch. Evolving I mean, or devolving? It's maybe normalizing. If I, you know, it's like coming back to downtown LA. I mean, the Staples Center. I don't know, but people tend to think of LA as this kind of like special case that defies all the norms and there's some merit to that for sure but at the same time like there's still gravity here and it's i mean in the past 10 20 years like throughout the u.s we've seen downtowns of cities kind of revitalized and i think that's a factor in downtown la part of it um there's you know among like millennials younger generations people are driving less there's less interest in owning a car um la is slowly migrating in that direction i mean as the metro expands i think they're I personally know people who live in LA and don't own cars and don't want to own a car. And it's part of me is like, well, why'd you ever come here? But, you know, but, but those people are out there and I think it is progressing a little bit in that direction. Um, but it's challenging. I mean, to, if there's one thing we could do for homelessness, it would be density. You know, I'm looking out the window and we're looking at two story buildings for the most part, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get the job done with, with the density being that constrained. Back to projects for a minute. So you're working on how many projects currently here in LA, or or else or elsewhere? How, um, many, how many projects does the office work on currently? Total in the studio right now is ten or twelve, which is a lot for us. We're yeah. busy, and probably roughly a third of that is in LA. And of those, mm -hmm. and I get it, I, I'm going back to the favorites. I know that the next one's your favorite, but yeah. of those. Um, any that that you you feel have special significance that you could see sort of developing future projects based on what's coming out of those um, 
I'm going to say, I know it's not the answer you're looking for. I'm, I'm going to say no, I think, because <laughs> the, the, the interior we did in Beijing with the 18 domes, I think was really transformative for how I'm thinking and we're thinking as a studio. And I think a lot of work intellectually has come out of that. Um, we just got a commission for a museum, which is also in China. Um, and we're looking at these kind of spatial networks, that food market. I mean, it just happens coincidentally that all these things are in other places, uh, either China, New York. I think we'll get there in LA. I think it's it's a, co a coincidence in some, in some right. degree. Well, we're going to keep our eye on that. And, um, and good luck with the hotel. Like, I hope it gets opened. We're, we're getting there. I think it's, it's progressing. It's like a giant ship. It's very slow to adjust, but it kind of keep, keeps chugging along. You're building a battleship in downtown LA. We're building a piece of the landscape. You know, it's, you probably saw it looks like a little bit like a giant rock. And, you know, part of that was me coming to LA as like an outsider and being very fascinated by this paradox of the climate in the sense that it's like so verdant, but it's a desert. You know, like back like 50 years ago in Paris, they had the student riots and they said, sous les pavés de la plage, meaning like under the pavement is a beach, which meant something totally different. But I feel like in LA, it's like under the asphalt is a desert. You know, there's a hidden desert that we don't see, right, ecologically, because of all this like imported water. And it's a little bit about that. It's about like the climate. And then I think in downtown in particular, there's this third thing because it's more, it's less Californian. It's, it looks more like, you know, the East Coast, let's say, if not Europe, then probably any other place in Southern California, more like San Francisco, not only in that it's dense, but that you know, the buildings are more traditional, classical, derived from like European architecture, which is very different than like the mid-century modern, you know, type of aesthetic that came to prevail. Um, so there's all these like other layers. And, and so we kind of came in and said, well, what about the desert? Like, what's really here? Um, I think Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, had an interest in the architectural history of the Southwest. Um, which, you know, again, for me is like less mid-century modernism than like, you know, cave dwellings, for example. I'm like obsessed with them. It's like every time I have time, I go to like, you know, Colorado, Arizona and visit these things. Because right? it's, it's the history of this place, you know, before all of us or like Mexico. Um, you know, I'm really interested in like Mayan architecture um, and a lot of the things that we find in Mexico. I mean, L.A. culturally is almost like a part of Mexico. I mean, it was a part of Mexico. I think in, on some level, it, you know, there's this profound connection between these two places that you see in L.A., um, I mean, that, that's part of the history here. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright, as he was working in LA in the 1920s, was at the same time that they were excavating a lot of the runes, the Mayan runes. And that was, those images were just kind of like emerging from the jungle and they were very fresh. And there's, among a subset of American architects, there's always been this interest in like, what is the real architecture? Like, what is American? What is indigenous? What is local? You know, meaning not imported from Europe or even from Asia for that matter, but what was here? And it's those things. And so whether it's like Mayan architecture or, you know, Native American cave dwellings or even the desert itself, like those are things that are, that are interesting to me. And so that's the story that we're trying to tell uh, in that hotel. And I, and I love that. And um, we'll have to circle back when it's completed and go see what you did. Thanks for the time. Thank you. That's a wrap on this episode of Convo by Design featuring architect Adam Sokol. Thank you for the time, Adam, and thank you for listening, downloading, subscribing, emailing, and coming out to our events. Without you, there is no Convo by Design. Please follow the podcast on Instagram, Convo by Design with an X, and make sure you subscribe 
everywhere you find your favorite podcasts uh, to the show. That way, you'll receive new episodes on your mobile device the moment they're published. Until next week, keep creating. Convo by Design is proud to be working with Vondam Furniture. Their design culture is the key to their success. It's what pushes them to consistently create new collections that give spaces a new dimension. They create dialogue between environment and form. Vondam pieces can transform the simplest space into one filled with glamour that is both unique and extraordinary. And isn't that what design is all about? Creating atmospheres where you can take hold of life and enjoy it to the fullest? Vondam products are simple and elegant, contemporary and exceptionally comfortable. Their crafted modern durable molded resin, glass, and metal designs are unique. They beg to be enjoyed. Have you seen them featured in our videos? Check out our YouTube channel and see this for yourself. You can also find them in their showrooms at the D&D Building in New York, Wynwood in Miami, and the Pacific Design Center here in Los Angeles, or online at vondam.com. Vondam.